Today's reading is from Acts chapter 9. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened up her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Morning, Redemption. How are you? So um, what Cody just did was an announcement about announcements. Wasn't that awesome? When you need somebody to make an announcement about announcements, call Cody Kimmel. I think he's the guy for us. Anyway, uh, we are glad that you are here this morning. Very excited this morning after the first service. I think uh, maybe Cody's already mentioned it. He'll mention it uh, at the end of the service uh, at any rate again. But we're baptizing six people this morning. So we want you after service to move out to the um, patio uh, for that celebration as well. Uh, this morning, we are in the book of Acts, so please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. I'm not going to reread any of that passage this morning. I think the story pretty well speaks for itself. I'm going to unpack a few things about it uh, before we move into uh, talking about what I'd like you to take home and consider this week and pray about uh, from this passage and then introduce you to what's going to be happening the next couple of weeks in the book of Acts. Uh, today we start kind of a three-week mini-series in the book of Acts. So from the end of chapter 9, this passage uh, today, uh, all the way through the end of chapter 11, uh, we're going to be looking at Peter's time spent outside of Jerusalem. I've kind of given it the title, Peter's Adventures Outside of Jerusalem, but he is now uh, preparing to, um, he's leaving Jerusalem for, for a spell, and, and some interesting things happen to him, and God uses him in some really wonderful ways. And these next three weeks really flow together and overlap, and they build on each other, and they're related. And so uh, I would encourage you to try to be here each of these next three weeks. I know that we live in a, in a community where there's a lot going on, and people are in and out of town. So even if you can't be here, make sure you get the podcast so you can see how all of this fits together. The big idea for today, for these 12 verses that we look at today, is very simply this. We must arrive at nothing short of Jesus. That's what everything is pointing to, and that's where you and I need to go, is to Jesus. So this passage gets started this way. Now, as Peter went 
here and there among them all. Uh, This is Luke, who's the author of Acts. It's his way of transitioning us now from talking about the conversion of Saul and everything that happened to Saul after his conversion to now something else that's going on, which is uh, Peter leaving Jerusalem. By the way, I have a little, I'm sorry, I have to do this to you. Um, I have a little dad joke for you, okay? So what happened to Saul on the way to Damascus? He was appalled. Yeah, thank you. Please groan very loudly, okay? So the louder you groan, the less chance I'll do this in the next service. So uh, anyway, the, the, the reason that people are now leaving Jerusalem, like Peter, he's kind of being pushed out of Jerusalem. He left once to go and verify what was happening in Samaria, but now he's being pushed out again, probably as a result of all the persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem, which Saul had a huge hand in starting in, in Jerusalem in chapters um, 6 and, and 7. And so Peter leaves, and he heads west-northwest out of Jerusalem to a place called Lydda, which is about 25 miles away from Jerusalem, uh, a little over halfway to the Mediterranean coast, which is where he's going to uh, eventually end up. And he encounters this guy named Aeneas, who we are told in the, in the passage has been bedridden for eight years. Uh, the, the commentators say that uh, the reason Luke gives us that detail is because they want us to know, that Luke wants us to know the severity of this paralysis, that, it, that, that this wasn't a fluke, he wasn't just sick, but this had been happening for a long, long time, and so this is a miracle. Uh, Jesus heals him. Peter says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and make your bed. Now, again, Luke gives us, and all of the Bible is like this. It, it, when you see uh, details in the Bible, the Bible is, is really written by a very good screenwriter. That would be the Holy Spirit through God's people. And there are no superfluous details. And so he says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and make your bed. And literally in the Greek, what it means is to fold up your bed in such a way that you can put it away. In other words, when, when Peter says <clears throat> to Aeneas, fold up your bed, he is letting him know that, this, that there's a finality to this miracle in the sense that he's never going to have to be paralyzed again. That this is, this is actually a spiritual picture now of the completeness of Aeneas' life uh, in Christ, okay? And so he says, fold up your bed. You're never going to need it again. You have Jesus Christ now. And, and it's a beautiful picture of the completeness of of the salvation and redemption of Jesus. When he says, fold up your bed, I remember when I was a kid, uh, you know, a lot of us have 30-year mortgages. Now some of us have 15-year mortgages. I I prefer those. I'd like to get rid of the mortgage as quick as possible. But I remember as a kid, uh, people used to live in the same house for 30 or 40 years. Not Many of us don't do that very much anymore. But I remember when somebody would approach that that last payment on their 30-year mortgage, when they made that last payment, I don't know if anybody else remembers this, they, when they made that last payment, they would take their mortgage and they would have a burning ceremony. You remember that? Okay, so some of you remember that, okay? This is essentially what Peter's telling Aeneas to do with his bed. When he says, fold up your bed, you are complete in Christ now. It's, it's a really uh, beautiful picture. Now, here's a question, though, that I think we need to ask. Was Aeneas the only person in all of Lydda who needed a miracle? Certainly not. Certainly not. So just keep that in mind. He's the only one who gets one, uh, so just keep that in mind. But I will say that we're told that many residents 
in Lydda saw what happened and they turned to Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Right after this happened, at the request of some people, a couple of guys that were sent from Joppa to get Peter, they asked him that he, to, to come to Joppa, that there's another situation in Joppa that they need uh, Peter for, and really what they need is the power of the gospel. They need the power of Jesus there. And so Peter says, okay, and he goes. And so he heads, again, west, northwest to Joppa. Joppa now is a coastal town on the Mediterranean. So he heads another 20 miles there. And there's a, a favored woman in the city of Joppa. Joppa is a bigger city than Lydda. Uh, and there was a favored woman there. Her name is Tabitha. She's also known as Dorcas. We're going to use the name Tabitha in this particular case. Uh, she got very sick and she died. And they had tried to do everything they could to save her. And then even in her death, they took care of her ceremoniously uh, the way they were supposed to. They washed her body in death, which was something that was very common. It was required for the ceremony of burial. And, and we're told through the details of what Luke gives us that she was a wonderful woman who did good things for all of the people in her community. And in particular, she was known for making garments and blankets for the widows in in Joppa. So she was, she was uh, somebody who took care of the, the least of these and the marginalized in, in this city. So uh, the fact that the widows loved her, they, they are marginalized people who really struggle, and she had a heart for them. And so that's why when Peter walks in, all these ladies are showing, they're saying, look what Tabitha made for me. Look at how wonderful this, this woman was. It was their way of honoring Tabitha. So I, as a pastor, I've done a lot of, of, of memorial services or funerals. And very often, in the midst of a memorial service, you will get to a point where we'll say, okay, we're going to have tributes and remembrances now. We're going to allow people to walk up to the microphone and, and spend a couple of minutes uh, paying tribute to and remembering the person who is deceased. And, and so you have that. Many of you have probably experienced that as well. That's essentially uh, what is, is going on here. But as they're doing that, Peter says, in effect to them, he says, well, that's nice, but this might shock you. It is not the time for tributes and remembrances just yet for Tabitha. In fact, I need everybody to leave right now. And, and it's not in the, in the passage, but you can imagine maybe some confusion and consternation by the people who are leaving. But they, they obey Peter and they leave. And, and Tabitha is raised by the power of Jesus. And of course, again, there is awe and celebration at this. And again, the people of Joppa heard of this and they believed in the Lord Jesus. So what do we make of these two accounts? I think that's a fair Question, here's what Stephen Cole, who's a commentator, writes about this. We need to ask why Luke included these two stories. Did he mean for us to imitate Peter by going out and performing miracles in Jesus' name? If someone answers affirmatively, I would point out that there were many in these towns who remained sick or who died and were not raised. In other words, God willed for these two miracles to take place. But there were many for whom no miracle occurred. Thus, I conclude that these miracles were not recorded to teach us to go out and do likewise, but for some other purpose. So the question becomes, what is that other purpose? And I will tell you that I think Luke answers that question clearly for us in verses 35 and 42 of the passage, where he says, people in the town saw what happened, and they believed in the Lord Jesus. 
The miracles, the signs, the wonders, we've hit on this before, and I know we have to keep talking about this because we struggle with it, but the point of the miracles, the point of the signs, the point of the wonders, while they're wonderful for the people they happen to, the, 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 the theological point, the, the life-giving point, the big reason why you need to do it is because it's pointing us to Jesus. Whether you are healed in this lifetime or not, you need healing for eternity, and that is the point of these miracles. We need to remember that not everyone is going to be healed temporally, but we also have to remember that everybody who is healed temporally will eventually die again physically. We need to remember that. You know, John chapter 11, the great raising of Lazarus from the dead. You know, Lazarus died again, okay? Tabitha is going to die again. Jesus maybe met that need temporally, but there's an expiration date on that miracle. The greater miracle, in fact, the miracle, I would argue, is the life that is given to us for eternity through the resurrected Christ and the filling of his spirit. That's what this is pointing to. Anyone can be healed and saved eternally. And so miracles and signs and wonders are kind of like a map quest to Jesus. That's it. It's all it's doing. It's just saying, look, don't celebrate that you got to the next rest stop. You're trying to get somewhere much more important, and that is going to be Jesus. We must arrive at Jesus. And so one of the things that <clears throat> I came across in the last few months that I've been holding for this passage for this reason is uh, an essay from Anne Swindell, who, who's had a very difficult life. And she wrote this essay for the Gospel Coalition, and I think Christianity Today picked it up. And, and I'm not going to read the whole essay, but I'm going to read a substantial portion of it because I think it'll speak to many of us in here. So listen, listen to this perspective from Anne Swindell. God doesn't always grant healing and wholeness in this life a painful reality that came to a head for me in college. I wrestled with the knowledge that God could heal me instantaneously, a small thing for him, surely, and the truth that he didn't. By the time I entered college, I, I had struggled with a chronic and debilitating condition for a decade. It affected everything that I did every day. I hated it, and I wanted it to stop. Neurologically, my brain could not stop itself, and that meant I couldn't heal myself. Because of the no I kept getting in response to my prayers for healing, God seemed silent and distant. Can anybody identify with this? One day, as I felt my frustration toward God mounting, I headed to the prayer chapel. I poured angry, hasty words onto journal pages with dark strokes of ink, I told God he seemed mean and cold and distant and impossible to deal with. The tears I cried weren't necessarily new, but they felt surprisingly fresh. I cried, I keep asking this question, God, why? Why won't you heal me? My hours of praying and begging, even my days of fasting, what have they done? Anything? I answered myself, nothing. They've done nothing. I'm worse than I've ever been. I wanted to push him away, this God who is all places and everywhere, and I wanted to run from him. I began to understand how people become bitter, how the seeds of anger turn into deep roots of distrust. I'm not proud of my bitterness or the ways I fought God, but, but it's the truth. I was mad. 
In fact, I was offended. Here is what I discovered. When we've begged and pleaded with God, and he still doesn't change our situation, we're left with a choice. We can offend him or we can obey him. Offense puts us in the judgment seat. We declare what God should do and how he should work. We're offended when he doesn't follow our plan. We point our finger at and tell him that he's wrong. While it's good to be honest with God, there's a distinct difference between heartfelt honesty and hostile honesty. Heartfelt honesty comes to God on its knees, crying out with humility and trust. Hostile honesty comes to God, pointing a finger. When our honesty turns hostile, we become bitter. We judge him and run from him. By doing so, we reject the very source of comfort we so desperately need. But here's what obedience looks like. We say yes to God, even when we don't understand him. This option feels harder in the short term, but it's the only real one if we're going to continue walking with Christ. In mercy, God pulled me back from the crag of prideful offense. The irony is that through small steps of obedience, he reminded me of this truth and kindness. The resurrection of the heart always precedes the resurrection of circumstances. Now, she didn't have her problem solved, but she did begin to understand what God was doing in and through her in the midst of her problem, and she also understands the wholeness and completeness that she has for eternity in Christ, and that's the point that she's getting to. And understand, this is from someone who is one of the others in Lydda or Joppa who was not healed and who was not raised, but she gives us great perspective. There's, um, there's something called the uh, hope and reality graph that I, I discovered once. I think a guy named Paul Miller put this together, and I think we're going to have it up on the, on the screen for you. Um, yeah, it's not up front, so I got to look at that. So <clears throat> this, is the, uh, this is our lifespan here on the bottom axis here, and this is the, this axis is, axis is kind of the quality of our life, okay? So all of us have this, we, we call it in this case hope, but all of us have this ideal for what our life is supposed to look like at any given moment. And, and, and notice where it is, and notice where reality is. All of us have this, no matter what situation we're in, no matter what our circumstances in, no matter if we're chronically debilitated or or were very successful in, in the marketplace, there's still this difference between hope and reality. What is it that occupies the, uh, the, that space between hope and reality? Well, here are some things that occupy that space. One of them is delusion. Okay, seriously, think about it. One of the, one of the problems with this is that some of us have hopes up there that, that no way, no, no matter what happens, you're just not going to, it's not going to happen. And so you end up walking around constantly frustrated and discouraged because your expectations are way too high. What is one of the number one reasons marriage have, marriages have conflict? Unrealistic expectations. That's what I just saw a bunch of people banging on their spouse, Okay. Seriously, but that's what it is. You have this hope for your marriage and you have the reality of your marriage. What are you going to do with that space in between? Part of it is delusion. 
The reality is that part of that space is actual suffering. And the Bible is not bashful about talking about the reality of suffering in life. Part of it is suffering, okay? And so we have to acknowledge that. That's just part of the reality of that, that gap in there. Part of it, what happens in there, part of it is you and I start to rationalize. We start to make excuses for God and why our life isn't the way we think it should be. And we start to go into defense mode for God. I will tell you, it's nice that we talk about God, but God really doesn't need us to defend him. He can do that all by himself. And, 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 and so that's not the answer either. You know what some of us do with that space there? You know what we do? We bargain. We start to negotiate. You know, God, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, God. If you could raise my reality line just two notches, I'll tell you what. I'll lower my hope line two notches. I'll try to meet you somewhere in the middle. How is that working for us? We do that, though. We do that all the time. Here's one of the ways we negotiate that. God, I promise you if we close this deal, half that commission is yours. That's one of the ways that we, we do this, okay? Here is, here you go. Here's where motivational speakers make their money. The difference between the reality line and the difference and, and the hope line. That's where motivational speakers make their money. Do you understand that's what's happening there? That's the psychology of it. And, and, and here's what's interesting about the motivational speakers. Here's what they'll tell you. The reason you're not getting that to, to, to that, it's your fault. You're not thinking about things correctly. You're not doing the right things. You don't have the right attitude. You're not conceiving it because if you conceive it, then you can believe it and then you can achieve it and all of this other mumbo jumbo. That's, that's, that's how they make their money. You know how the Apostle Paul deals with this? In Philippians 4, he calls it contentment. He says, I have learned by the power of Jesus Christ in this world that no matter what situation I am in, to be content. He says, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether, whether I have a wonderful place to live or I'm sleeping on a mat somewhere, no matter what situation I'm in, if I have a lot of money or I have no money at all, I've learned to be content because why? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That, that's what we're looking at. And here's the last thing I want to mention. You know what else is the difference between those two things? It's sin. It's sin. In fact, that hope line was created in Genesis 1 and 2. That's where, where we are supposed to be. That's the way things are supposed to be. Genesis 1 and 2, read it. It's paradise. Adam and Eve never sat around and talked about the brokenness of the world prior to Genesis 3. They never talked about who was in charge of their marriage prior to Genesis 3. They never had conflict or struggles. They never had to worry about where they were going to eat or how they were going to find shelter. They never had to worry about any of those things. They never had to worry about disease. They never had to worry about death. They never had to worry about trust and intimacy. They never had to worry about any of those things that go on in this graph. But then Genesis 3 comes, and the brokenness of sin comes, and, and our graph, our reality, goes low. That's the effect of sin and the brokenness of sin on this world. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more in just a minute in, in what I want to give you to think about. This passage ends with a clear transition into what happens next during Peter's adventures outside of Jerusalem. 
uh, we're told right at the end that he stays for many days in Joppa with who? Simon a tanner. A tanner. Now, I want you to think about the cleanliness laws of the Mosaic laws that Peter lived under as a Jew and the fact that he's now living, he's staying with a tanner who deals with nothing but death all the time. The tanner's unclean. And yet Peter goes and stays with Simon. And yet, and yet, what happens next is he has an encounter with a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And before he has this encounter, God has to convince Peter that it's okay to Cornelius and tell him about Jesus, that this Roman centurion can indeed be included in the, in the kingdom of God. Many weeks ago when we started this series, I said that um, Peter's transformation from pre-resurrection Peter to post-resurrection Peter was absolutely stunning. The resurrection changes things. Peter goes from this doofus who's always putting his, his, his foot in his mouth, who can never say the right thing at the right time, uh, this kind of this, just this big oaf to this incredible leader and preacher of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, I said, while he had the head knowledge, he had the cognitive all figured out, he knew that everybody should be included in the kingdom of God, it still hadn't traveled that 18 inches to his heart yet. He still affectively couldn't truly deal with the fact that non-Jewish people were going to be included in the, the kingdom of God. He, he, he got it, he understood it cognitively, but when it really came right down to it, he still needed Jesus to do some work on his heart. And that's what's going to happen in these next couple of, of weeks. You're going to see Jesus kind of put the finishing touches on Peter's heart so that he comes, he comes all the way and he begins to even understand that even a Roman soldier, his hated enemy, can be included in the kingdom of God. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that in, in just a second. But I want to give you these three things to think about before we go. Here's the first one. The disease, the incapacitating physical challenges, the possessions by dark spirits, the economic injustices, and the death that is described in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are realities and images of the spiritual condition of humans under the corruption of sin. So again, think about that hope and reality graph. The reality, there is reality in that gap between the hope and the reality, and that reality is the corruption of sin. Every one of us knows this is not the way it's supposed to be, and you are correct. We are correct about that. The, the challenge, though, is that we're the ones that caused it. Well, I didn't do that. I wasn't there in the garden. Yeah, but we're still participating in it today. We live in a disordered world. Genesis 1 and 2 is the created order, and it's beautiful. And then in Genesis 3, we disordered the created order. We live in a disordered world. We live in a broken world. We live in a corrupted world. And we live at enmity with everything. We live in conflict with everything. You and I live at enmity with each other. We have great relationships and great community. That is true. But we have to do things like build trust, and then we end up losing trust. We, we have to do things like making sure that that, that that person is safe, 
And then we begin to find out they're really not that safe. We have to hide our true selves from each other in order to be able to get into community with the people that we want to be in community with. Because, because of sin, we are at enmity with each other. We are constantly negotiating our relationships because of our sin. We are at enmity with God. One of the things that the corruption of sin in Genesis 3 was it broke relationship with God. And so we don't have a right relationship with God. Jesus comes and fixes that. We are at enmity with ourselves. We are fragmented within ourselves. We are divided within ourselves. Our heart is divided. Our heart is divided towards our, between our affections for God and our affections for sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is wicked and deceptive above everything. Who can understand it? It's because, it's because of what Paul says in Romans 3. The very things I want to do, I don't do those things. But those things I don't want to do, those are the things I find myself doing. That is a divided heart. We are broken against each other. And of course, we're broken against creation. We're broken with creation. Creation is broken. Creation is atrophying. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that even the creation cries out for, for redemption. So we're at enmity with all of these things. In Romans chapter 1, Paul sets as his stage for the human condition the created order and says we have disordered it and here's why and here's how that affects us and it's not good it is really ugly psalm 51 king david says i was conceived in sin i was conceived in sin i came out of the womb not with a blank slate but as a sinner my my destination as a sinner was already guaranteed i need salvation i need redemption who can i turn to other than you Oh, Lord. Uh, Jesus even says this. And this is one of the most interesting things that Jesus says because it scandalizes so many people. Jesus at one point says, the poor you will always have with you. That scandalizes some people. get so mad. Well, that, that may have been true in Jesus' time, but by golly, I'm going to fix this poor thing right now. How's that going for us, okay? I'm not saying we shouldn't help the poor. I'm just saying that there's always going to be someone else. Jesus says so. And you know why he says it? He doesn't say it because he likes the fact that there's poor people. He doesn't say it because he wants to discourage us. But he says that the world's a mess because of sin, and therefore, because of sin, we're always going to have things like poor people. That's just the way the world is going to be. That's the reality of this world. We're always going to have poor people because of, here you go, because of sin. The laziness and the idleness of the poor person, or perhaps it's the oppression and the abuse by other people against the poor person. Or maybe it's the human systems that are strategized and operated by who? Sinful human beings. That's why everybody says, I've got a perfect system to fix this, and then the system never works. It's because there's been sin inherently built into the system, just like sin is inherently built into us. We were knitted together in our mother's womb in sin. Genesis chapter 3 says there's always going to be death and decay and disease until Jesus comes again. This is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. We need Jesus, and that's the message. We have to arrive at Jesus. Our new life is in Jesus. Here's the second thing. Healing and fixing in this world is great, but I want to ask this question. What about unmeasurable prevention? What about what we might call unmeasurable prevention? Now, I would continue to argue that one reason we don't see in the American church 
uh, as much healing or fixing as the Bible describes is because we simply don't believe it'll happen. We really don't. We'd like to have um, marriages fixed instantaneously and financial uh, disasters fixed instantaneously and, and disease and, and, and uh, chronic illness fixed instantaneously. We'd like that, but here's how we pray. And I will tell you, I'm guilty of praying this way too, and I don't ever want to pray this way again because it, it betrays the fact that I don't believe in Jesus really, okay? But here's how we will pray. We'll pray something like this. We'll say, uh, God, uh, here's... Here's this marriage, and it's all messed up, and God, you're sovereign. You're, you're the creator God of the universe. You can do anything, God. You have all power, and you, know, and you know everything. And so we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ that you would heal this marriage and change attitudes and help them to love each other the way Christ loved them. But then what do we pray? But God, if you don't do that, we understand that that's your will, and that's okay. You know why we pray that? so that we're not disappointed later if God doesn't work. We're hedging in our prayers. That's what we're doing. And we're telling God, we're not really telling God we're humble and you can do whatever you want. We're just trying to protect our hearts in the midst of that. We need to pray boldly. We need to pray boldly. So we cannot say, as some people say, everyone should be fixed just like in the Bible. Uh, let, me tell, let me correct you there. Not everyone in the Bible was fixed, okay? So that's not accurate, but we also cannot say no one can be healed or fixed in the church because clearly there are people who receive God's intervention and God's miracles. I've seen it in this church. I've seen it. It's always astounding when it happens, and some people have said, why are you so astounded? It's God. He can do whatever he wants. But there's another side of this coin that I want to get at that is almost never talked about and we almost never give credit to, and that's the idea that when you live the gospel life, when you live in faithful obedience, when you live in the will and the wisdom of God, that can actually prevent a lot of the challenges that we end up having simply by living in the gospel. It's always interesting to me how a marriage might take 15 years to get into absolute terrible trouble, and during that 15 years, the couple has completely ignored God but then they decide they need God to fix their marriage, and they're a little annoyed that he doesn't do it in 45 minutes. Do you see what I'm, ta- you see what I'm saying? And, and yet, if they had lived a gospel-centered marriage from the beginning, they wouldn't be where they are now. It's the same thing with finances, the same thing with money. I, I'm going to do everything the Bible says I shouldn't do with my money, and then when the creditors all come and I'm facing bankruptcy, I'm going to pray that God will intervene with a miracle. And really, if you just lived by the biblical tenets of, of financial management, sound financial management, which, by the way, are not that difficult to understand, you wouldn't be in the trouble that you're in uh, right now. There are people who never seem to have trouble with their money, and the reason is because they live a biblical life with their money. There are people who have these wonderful marriages, and you look at it and go, I wish my marriage was like that. And really, it's because Jesus is at the center of their marriage, not because they're smarter than you or because they got somebody better than you. Actually, they do. They have Jesus. That may be the problem. Okay? You read the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Have you noticed who the fool is? In Pro- Proverbs talks a lot about the fool. Who's the fool? The fool is the one who dismisses God, who doesn't live in his will, who ignores God. And what happens to the fool? The fool always suffers and ends up being destroyed. Always. There's no exception to that. There's no time when the fool actually wins. So, so, 
this, this measurable, uh, this, this immeasurable prevention, the challenge is that we can't measure that. I can't come to you and say we saved seven marriages last week because they've lived in the gospel. But we know it's happening. Here's just one quick example, and then I'll move on to the, the last one. There may be no place in life that, marriage, that, uh, that life is more painful than in marriage and family. It can be really painful, and as a pastor, I know this. So I do a lot of marriage counseling. I do a lot of retreats. I do premarital counseling, postmarital counseling, all, all, all the counseling, and I'm happy to do it. Um, that's part of my call and part of my job. But I will tell you that lately I have been really encouraged by the number of couples that I've been meeting with who have been asking to meet with me or with Tyler or with Cody who are not in crisis, who are not in crisis, but rather they want to meet so that they can enrich and make their uh, marriage even better. They want to stay on course. They want to stay focused on Jesus. They want to know what they can do to keep doing what they're already doing doing. That's really encouraging. And I will say that's maturity in, in Christ. That represents a mature understanding of the gospel. And I will say that these are people in their 20s and 30s who are coming to meet with us. Like They're not in crisis. Sure, they've got their... Marriage has got problems. Can I get an amen? Okay, so marriage has got some problems, but I'm, they're not... These are not couples that are saying, this, we're blowing this out of the water. These are couples who are coming and saying, it's good. We want it to continue. We want it to be even gooder. I just very aggravated some of the English teachers in here, okay? The truth is we cannot always qualitatively measure prevention, but we know it's there. And the gospel leads us away from foolishness of this world and into the wisdom of God's will. And pressing into the gospel prevents us often from disasters and suffering and frustration. So pursue the gospel life. Know what God's word says. Pray. Get into community. The last thing I want to mention is just I think with Tabitha's raising, it, it, that, is a, that is a beautiful picture of the, of the resurrection in Christ that we all have, that we're all going to be raised to live with Christ. And, and it's a harbinger or a foreshadowing or a foretaste of that. And I just want to read you what Paul writes in his first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 15 about this resurrection because it's just beautiful. This is, if you're in Christ, this is us. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelfth. Uh, the great old teacher, passed away teacher, Larry Wright, used to call this the gospel in a nutshell. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he, also, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God is not only for salvation, but it's also for life and for sanctification. That's the resurrection of Jesus in us. So, go back to Acts. Just want to introduce you to what's going to happen next, chapter 10, and then we'll be done. 
So here's what happens to Peter after he hangs out with Simon the Tanner. At Caesarea, now Caesarea is a, I don't know, 80 miles north of, of um, Joppa on the coast. So he's on the Medit- still on the Mediterranean. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So understand, Luke's giving us this, th- these details to help us understand that this would be the natural enemy of Peter, who is Jewish and an occupied person by the Romans. So Cornelius would be, he's a, gen- he's a Gentile, he's not Jewish, and he's also part of the Roman cohort. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So here again is this idea of a God-fearer in the Bible. He's a non-Jew, he's a Gentile, but he fears God. He worships and loves uh, the, the Jewish God, Yahweh. He, he gives alms and sacrifices. Um, he, he takes care of people out of the goodness of, of his heart that God has implanted in there. He follows the laws of Moses. He is a God-fearer. And here's what's interesting. We're going to read in a second. I want you to hear this. In the book of Amos... God says to his people, your sacrifices, your alms, the things that your burnt offerings, they stink in my nose. I hate your sacrifices. I can't stand them. And yet we're going to see in here that he honors Cornelius's. And Cornelius is a Gentile and a Roman, part of the Roman cohort. Yet he honors Cornelius's. Why do you think that is? It's because God's people, the Jews, were doing it because they had to, whereas Cornelius was doing it from his heart because he truly loved God. So look look at what he says. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Now, just he stared at him in terror, wouldn't you? I would, okay? And he said to him, your prayers in your arms, uh, alms, your arms too, probably, but your prayers, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, notice how God is arranging all these backstories. He's just arranging this beautifully and perfectly. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And Peter became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. We're not sure if he fell asleep or he just had a vision, but he had a vision. He saw the heavens open up with something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. All of these animals were things that Jews were not allowed to eat. And and God is saying, it's okay to go ahead and eat those. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. That's good news right there. We've all been made clean. We've all been made clean. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, and that's where I'm going to give you the little cliffhanger. (laughs) Just like Hollywood, you're going to have to come back next week and find out what happens. We're going to go back and unpack some more of those things uh, next week, but you're going to see what happens with Cornelius next week. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you uh, for your word and its truth, and boy, oh boy, we thank you for these narratives 
in, in the book of Acts and what we can learn from them and how we can be encouraged by them and the work that you're doing not only that you did not only in the early church, but also in, in, that you're doing in us. God, thank you for that. Uh, we need to arrive at nothing short of Jesus. Let that be our message today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're